That lady makes me want to go to the women's retreat. <laughs> my name is Matt, and that woman on the screen was my wife, just for those of you who don't know and feel like that was a really creepy comment, all right? It's great to have all of you here as we worship Jesus this morning. Before we get into the message today, I just want to put out a big reminder to everyone in here that next week is Mission Sunday, which means we will be where? That's right. We will be in Shakopee. There will not be any services here next Sunday. We'll all be over in Shakopee with all of our missionaries celebrating what God is doing around the world and through our missionaries and wants to do through us. So join us over in the Shakopee campus next week. If you don't know where that is, uh, there are maps out at the Welcome Center that you can grab in order to get over there, or you can look that up on the World Wide Web and probably find your way there as well. We are finishing up today a sermon series called When God Says Jump. This sermon series has been all about a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah and the faith that they have, and sometimes the faith that they don't have. And we've been learning lessons about faith as we have been looking at these accounts about Abraham and Sarah. And we're going to be looking today at Genesis chapter 22 as we close up this study. And so you can turn there, you can get ahead of me, and I would love to pray for us as we jump in to God's Word today. Father, we come here today and we are a people uh, who are tired or refreshed. Lord, we're, we're a people who come here today filled with wonderful circumstances or challenges. Lord, we are highly caffeinated or uncaffeinated. Wherever we are today, Lord, we offer ourselves fully to you. Uh, we come in our brokenness and our mess and our fatigue, and we offer ourselves fully and totally to you in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the most valuable thing in your life? If you're a, a follower of Jesus, let me ask you that question differently. Other than God and your salvation... What is the most valuable thing in your life? Right? I, I've heard a, a few different answers. In the first service, there was a man who yelled loudly, My wife! So many points he got. <laughs> Absolutely. Nice work. Uh, what is most valuable? Uh, most precious to your mind, your heart, your daily decisions. There are all kinds of images that flood into my mind when I think about that. There's the image of my wife in her wedding dress and the years that we have spent together. There's so much value there. I think of holding my kids on the day of their birth and where we are today, so much value. I think of my dog jumping up on the bed at 5 a.m. and waking me up by making sure that she licks inside my mouth. <laughs> I had so much value. No, that's, that actually goes on a different list altogether. But it's a reminder that every day when my wife and I wake up, we wake up in a comfortable and warm place. Isn't there value to that? Our, our friends, our family, our homes, our jobs, these can all be things of intense value to us. And I think 4,000 years ago, if you asked Abraham and Sarah, other than God, what is the most valuable thing in your life, they would have answered quickly and strongly, Isaac. Isaac is the most valuable thing in our life. 
if you've been here for the last several weeks, then you know how long it's been that they have been promised this child of blessing. You know how many times this promise was made that they would have a son. You know the miracle that has taken place so that they would have a son when Abraham is a hundred and Sarah is 90. And if you asked Abraham and Sarah, what's the most valuable thing in your life? I think they would have sat there together holding hands and said, the child of the promise. It's Isaac that is most valuable. And we get a sense of that value in the story of Isaac's birth in Genesis chapter 21. Look at these verses with me. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham and Sarah have had this child promised to them for decades, way back to Genesis chapter 12, when they were much younger people. They have been waiting so long that when God reiterated the promise for the umpteenth time in Genesis 17 and 18, they both laughed. Come on, we're so old. We're well past our childbearing years. Are you kidding me? And they laughed because of how impossible this seems. But now we're told that they're going to laugh for an entirely different reason. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Diapers at a hundred. What a blessing. Now look at this. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? What does the name Isaac mean? Laughter. And in Genesis 17 and 18, Abraham and Sarah both laugh at the promise that they're going to have a child past their childbearing years because of how absurd it is. But now this idea of laughter has been turned upside down, hasn't it? Instead of laughing because of the absurdity of this idea, they're laughing because of joy. And they say people are going to come and they're going to laugh with us and laugh over us because of the joy involved in the birth of this child, this miracle child that has been given to us. God has fulfilled his promise against all odds. Past childbearing years, God has fulfilled his promise. And in the next verse in Genesis 21, Abraham is throwing this giant party at Isaac's weaning. They are celebrating him because if you asked Abraham and Sarah, what is the most valuable thing in your life? They would have said, Isaac. Isaac's the most valuable thing. Which is why I think the test that God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 is such a thorough and deep test of faith. We are going to see Abraham be tested in the deepest possible way, the most challenging possible way, and he is going to respond in faith. And as we look at that in Genesis 22, it's going to teach us valuable lessons about the faith that we have in Jesus. In Genesis 22, we read about this test. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, right off the bat, Right, right off the bat, what do we find out? 
God is testing Abraham. This is given to you as a public service announcement. This is a test. This is only a test. So that you will not, as the reader, be experiencing the high anxiety that comes along with some of the circumstances that we're about to read about. But recognize Abraham does not get this public service announcement. Throughout this account, Abraham doesn't get this forewarning that this is only a test. The Hebrew word nissa that's translated tested here means to prove the worth of something. When I was younger, there were many years that I worked in a booth at the Midway at the State Fair. And we would sell tickets for the rides there as a way to raise money for missions trips. And people would bring you bills that were larger than $20 bills, and every time you received one of those, what were you supposed to do? You were supposed to take your little magic marker and mark the bill and see if it turned the right color on the bill. And if it turned the right color, then it was genuine. And that is precisely what this word says is happening with Abraham's faith. There is a test going on, and it is going to determine, is your faith genuine? Is your faith full and rich, Abraham, or are there ways in which your faith needs to grow? God tests our faith like that as his followers. In his goodness, in his generosity, he tests our faith. Because there's nothing more important for us than to know where does our faith stand? Is our faith strong so that we can have confidence? Or are there weaknesses or or lack in our faith? We need to be able to see that and know that. And so God in his grace and in his generosity tests our faith. Now, does it always feel like goodness and generosity? No, because the tests are often challenging and hard. But they are God's grace. They are God's generosity. And what is the test for Abraham? God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What's Abraham being called to do? To sacrifice his son to God. This was common practice among all of the pagan people that were around Abraham to sacrifice your children to their false gods. And God here is saying, look at that devotion. Do you have that same kind of devotion to me? The devotion that these pagans have to their false gods. Do you have that same kind of devotion to the one true God? Abraham, will you sacrifice Isaac? Why is God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? It's because Isaac is the most important thing in Abraham and Sarah's life. If their tent had been the most important thing in their life, what would God have called them to sacrifice? He would have called them to sacrifice that tent because it was the most valuable and important thing in their life. Calls them to sacrifice Isaac because that is the most valuable gift. Notice that he says here, your only son whom you love. He's pointing out the value that Isaac has to him. He wants wants Abraham to understand, do you have faith in the giver or are you primarily caught up in the gift? Is your primary value and love for the giver or for the gift? Because if you won't obey my commands here, then your primary value is for the gift. And you're not my follower, you're Isaac's follower. So he wants to know, is it, 
Is your life about the giver or is it about the gift? That really brings us to the first primary teaching about faith that we see in this passage. Faith submits everything to God. In genuine faith, we submit everything to God. God has made us so that we as people have him as our single great priority in life. That is how we have been made. We have been designed to function with God as the single great priority of our lives. And God will suffer no rival for that place of preeminence in our life. Anything else that we put in that place of priority steals God's rightful place and damages us as people. And so God says, don't, don't do that. Don't be about the gifts. Be about the giver of the gifts. When Jesus says, Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy to be my disciple. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy to be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, anyone who loves the gifts more than the giver isn't really a disciple of the giver. They're a disciple of the gifts. He says, you got to love the giver most in this life. In Luke chapter 18, when a rich young man comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you need to go and sell everything and then come and follow me. Why does he say that? He says it because he recognizes in this young man's heart the gifts of possessions are what have a hold of him. And Jesus says, you've you got to get rid of this chasing of the gifts as the priority of your life and come and follow the giver. In the very next chapter, there is an account about another rich man that is meant to be juxtaposed with that first rich man account. And in that account, the rich man gives away all of his possessions. And Jesus declares over that rich man named Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he gave away everything? No, but because in giving away everything, what he made clear is my heart isn't devoted to the idols, it's not devoted to the gifts, it's devoted to the giver. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus says, the one who seeks to save their life will lose it. But the one who loses their life, for my sake, will save it. What is he talking about? He's saying, those who seek to pursue the gifts in this life, they lose real life. But those who will forego those things in order to pursue the giver above everything else in this life, they get genuine life, real life. Jesus makes this principle about pursuing the giver rather than the gifts so very clear in the amazing parable in Luke 14 of the, of the banquet. In that parable, the master throws a great banquet and he sends out invitations. And the parable says there are three different people who don't go to the master's great banquet what are the reasons that they miss out on the master's great banquet? The first one misses out on the banquet because he wants to get married. The second one misses out on the great banquet because he wants to go and do his work. The third one misses out on the great banquet because he just bought land and he wants to go and see the land that he bought. Are those evil things that cause them to miss out on the great banquet? Absolutely not. Marriage? Owning property, work, 
Those aren't bad things. As a matter of fact, I would contend that as we read Genesis 1 and 2, these are the three primary good gifts that God gave to people before the fall. Marriage, work, dominion over the land. That's what God gave to us as primary good gifts for people. And here Jesus says, those greatest of gifts, those very best of gifts, that's what actually keeps people from the kingdom banquet. Why? Because they valued the gift over the giver of the gift. They valued the gift over the giver of the gift. I think that this morning God calls all of us to examine our lives and to say, God, you're the priority. What's second? What is it that's second on that list? If God's the priority, what's second? And how big has it grown? And and how far behind God for priority is it? Is it behind God? And then the harder question, is there any way in which God is specifically calling you to submit that or sacrifice it in order to make clear, God, it's not the gifts, it's the giver that life is all about? In a sense, that is what we do when we fast Right? We give up the good gifts in order to say, God, life isn't about the gifts. For this period of time, we're giving them up because life's about you, the giver. You're the priority here. Is God calling you in any way to submit or sacrifice gifts to recognize life is all about him? Abraham submits absolutely everything to God. And so he and Isaac make this two-day walk to the mountain that God calls them to. And on the third day they arrive, and we read in verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, his servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He's there to do what with Isaac again? He's there to sacrifice him. And so what is this business about the boy and I are going to go over there and then we're going to come back to you? He he might just be lying about the boy and he coming back at this point in order to get away, but I actually think there's something far greater at play. When we read this passage, what we see is this intense and deep faith in Abraham throughout. God is going to provide. Abraham recognizes that God has called him to sacrifice his son. And in this passage, he is going to be obedient to that call. He also recognizes that God has promised him that this son will be the son of blessing through whom many offspring will come. Does Abraham know know how to reconcile those two things? Absolutely not. How can I both sacrifice the child of promise and have him be the child of promise through whom many offspring come? How do I reconcile those things? Abraham doesn't know, and yet what does he do? He moves forward in faith. He's going to be obedient in faith, even though he doesn't understand how all of this is going to work out. Isn't that Jesus' call in our life so many days? Where Jesus calls us to be filled with faith when it comes to sharing our testimony and the gospel with others, to be filled with faith with how we use our time, with how we use our resources. And so often we're like, God, I'm going to be obedient to your command here, but I don't know how this is all going to work out. Like Abraham, we're called to walk in faith, be obedient to God's command, even when we don't know how it's all going to work out. What a beautiful picture of that Abraham is here.
And so he and Isaac head up the mountain. And as they're on their way up the mountain, they have a father-son conversation. And Isaac says to Father Abraham, My father, here I am, my son, he said. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This is a great question, right? It's really hard to have a burnt offering without something to burn. Where is it? Now look at Abraham's response to this question. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. God will provide. In this single utterance, Abraham is both expressing his trust in God and his good provision, and he is also prophesying over what will take place on this very mountain for centuries to come. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so Abraham built an altar, and he bound his son. Now I want to pause there for a second. Because most scholars think that at this point, Isaac is about 17 or 18 years old. Which makes Abraham almost 120 Now, I have a son that's just a couple of years older than Isaac is supposed to be here, and I guarantee that I could not bind him if he was not cooperating. Right? Now, when he's around, I don't want you to tell him I said that. Because his dad is very clear, yes, I can whoop you whenever, right? But no, no. That is not actually the case. And I could never bind him if he did not cooperate. And I am well short of 120 years old. I have to believe at this point there is cooperation taking place. And just as Abraham is being totally obedient to God in what he is doing, Isaac is totally submitting and being obedient to Abraham in what is going on here. And this will not be the last time in the Scripture that a child of blessing submits to their father's will in order to be a sacrifice. Is fully submitting to his father's will. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham has passed the test. Clearly, the giver is more important than the gift. And he has passed the test. His faith has shown. And immediately, a substitute sacrifice is provided. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord... It shall be provided. The lamb stood in Isaac's place. And as Second Chronicles chapter 3 shows us, it is upon this very mountain where this takes place that the temple of Israel will be built. Where ultimately, lamb after lamb after lamb will stand in place of people because of the sins that they have committed. All pointing towards the one who would one day come and be heralded as the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, who would stand on this mountain and declare forgiveness of sins through him. 
This is the substitute. Did you notice throughout this that Abraham not only has faith in God to submit or sacrifice everything to him, but he also has faith in God that God will provide what is good and what is needed. Throughout this passage, Abraham has full faith and trust in God that God is going to provide what is good and what is needed. In verse verse 5, he says, the boy and I, we're coming back to you. In verse 8, he says to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb that is needed for this sacrifice. The entire way through, Abraham fully trusts God's going to provide. God is going to do what is best in this situation. And that really reminds us of this second lesson of faith we see here. Faith trusts God to provide what is best. We see how deeply and thoroughly the faith of God is in this situation in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, look at the faith of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and you had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. To what extent did Abraham believe the promises of God? He believed that if he followed through on the command of God to sacrifice his son, that because of God's promise that the blessing would come through Isaac, that God would simply raise Isaac from the dead so that those promises would be fulfilled. That is the level of trust and faith that Abraham had in God, that God would do what is good and what is best for his people. Jesus promises to his followers that when we are in pursuit of the giver, he will do what is good and what is best for his people. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God commands his people not to be anxious about provision for the future, because God knows what you need and he will provide. But do you recognize the condition that exists in these verses for that to happen? Right? This is true for those who do what? Seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus says, for those whose life is about the pursuit of the giver rather than the pursuit of the gifts, God will provide all that you need and all that is good in your life. But the condition is, you got to be pursuing the giver instead of the gifts as the primary pursuit of your life. You have to seek first the kingdom. If we're seeking family first, if we're seeking comfort first, if we're seeking possessions first, if we're seeking success first or being well-liked first, the promise of these verses is null and void. This is for those who seek first the kingdom of God, who are in full-out pursuit of the giver rather than the gifts. 
Abraham was, and God provided exactly what he needs. And if you are seeking after the giver, the promise of Jesus is he will provide every good thing, every needed thing for you. Now the promise that God gives to Abraham here goes beyond just the provision of a substitute ram in this, in this situation. As a matter of fact, God now talks to him about the blessing that will be his in the future. Talks to him about all of the blessing that will belong to his family line. And he says in verses 16 through 18, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Right now, I'm swearing this. This is uh, on me. This is a single uh, covenant. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God says to Abraham, your choosing of the giver over any gift is why I picked you decades before to bless you so that all the people on the earth would be blessed. And Abraham, I didn't just provide substitute for you, what you need today, what is good for you today. I am going to bless you beyond what you can imagine into the future. And I want you to stay focused on that blessing. This is God's call to all of us in faith. We're to be a people in faith who look to God's future blessing, who stay focused on God's future blessing in our life. I told you before that when my wife and I moved into our current house four years ago last, in February, one of the first things that I did, even though there was two feet of snow all over my yard, was go to the store and buy a lawnmower because I didn't have one. Right? Why I didn't have one, that's a long story that we don't need to get into today. But I didn't have one. And so at, when we moved in, I went to the store, I bought a lawnmower. Why? Why would I buy a lawnmower when there was two feet of snow all over my yard? Because I had faith in future blessing. <laughs> I had faith that there would come a time where we would once again feel the warm radiance of the sun on our face, where the snow would melt away and the green grass and the flowers would blossom. Right? Anyone looking forward to that future blessing? And because I had faith in that future blessing, it impacted how I lived that very day. And in that same way, God says, there is a surer and that there is a far greater blessing for you as followers of Jesus Christ that I want you focused in on, seeing every day of your life in a way that changes how you live. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, for those who are willing to share Jesus Christ even though they're persecuted for it, for those who are willing to stand for Jesus even though others might mock them, he says, I want you to be encouraged because great is your reward in heaven. He says, there's a future blessing, and it should impact how you live today. 
In Luke chapter 14, he says, for those of you who are willing to use your resources in order to make kingdom impact and help those who are hurting, I want you to understand that there will be a future blessing for you. He says, they will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. For the follower of Jesus Christ, there is never a permanent sacrifice that they make. Jesus says, every gift that you give up right now, you will ultimately be repaid by God beyond anything that you have given up. Uh, he, he says exactly that to Peter in Matthew chapter 19 when Peter asks a question of him. So the, the framework here is the, uh, the rich young ruler has just come to Jesus and has gone away sad. And they're having a discussion about wealth and about resources. And Peter recognizes, we've given up a whole lot in order to come and follow you. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What's Peter asking? He's saying, those of us who have given up the gifts that are all around us in life in order to primarily pursue the giver, what happens with all of those gifts we've given up? Now, I want you to notice that Jesus does not say to Peter here, Peter, I can't believe you're worried about that. That is so petty. Come on. Instead, Jesus actually tells Peter about the future blessings that will be his in order to motivate him. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now we talk a lot in here about biblical promises that are for us and biblical promises that are not for us. I believe this is a biblical promise that is not for us. This is for the twelve, thus the twelve thrones that they will sit upon as they judge Israel who has rejected the Messiah. As a matter of fact, I think it's even more sure that this is not for us by the first two words of the very next verse. And everyone. Right? Last promise was for the twelve. Who is this promise for? Everyone, this one is for us. And what is the promise that is for us in this scripture? And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What does Jesus say here? He says, anyone who sacrifices the gifts that are available in this world, even the very best gifts that God might give, in order to run after the giver and for the sake of the kingdom of the giver, they will ultimately be repaid a hundredfold. A hundredfold in this life and the life to come. Can, can we recognize for a minute that a hundredfold reward is not the way that most of the reward programs work in our world? How do the reward programs work in our world? You buy 100 gallons of gas, you get five free. You spend $100 on your red card, you get five free. You book 10 nights on Hotels.com, you get one free. Jesus is saying, that is not the way my rewards program works. My rewards program is a hundredfold. Can you imagine pulling into, it's not Super America anymore, what is it, Speedway? Is that right? Something like that? 
Imagine pulling into Speedway and you spend a dollar on gas and they hand you a gift card for a hundred dollars more. Right? That'd be pretty good right now. We'd take that. Imagine booking a hotel on Hotels.com and you book one night and they say, you have free stays for the next five years. Maybe this will hit a little closer to home for some of you. Imagine walking into the golf store and buying a sleeve of golf balls and they say, oh, that comes with a set of brand new clubs. Right? That's a hundredfold reward. Jesus says that's absolutely the way that the rewards program will work with God. For anyone who sacrifices gifts for the sake of the giver and the kingdom. He calls us to see that future blessing and to live according to that future blessing. What do we see in terms of faith lessons as we go through this? Faith submits everything to God. We need to be ready to sacrifice anything and everything, no matter how great the gift is, to God. But we also trust that as we're submitting and sacrificing those things, God is going to provide what is best and what is good for us, isn't he? And even beyond that, we look to this amazing future blessing that we have in God. And it encourages our hearts and changes the way we live today as our minds and hearts are focused on that. The only reason that we can have that future blessing is because of what Jesus did as a sacrificial substitute for us. A substitute that is foreshadowed in this account. As that ram is a substitute offering. In that same way, Jesus would come and would be a substitute offering, giving himself for the sake of people so that our sins might be forgiven. I would love for you to keep that image in your mind. Jesus as the substitute sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of his people. We're, we're going to go to the tables and get the elements in just a moment. And I'd invite you to take the bread and take the cup and bring it back to your seat. We will all take it together. We'll continue to praise God and worship him in song. So whenever you're ready, go and get those elements and you can bring them back to your seats.